Welcome to the Heart-Centered Therapist Podcast, the podcast created for you, the therapist who leads with your heart and loves serving your clients. I'm Cindy Gozanski, your host. I know that being a heart-centered therapist is immensely rewarding and powerful and intensely challenging and difficult. We're on this journey together. My mission is to help you continue loving your work as a therapist, surviving being a therapist, and feeling more connected as a therapist. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Heart-Centered Therapist podcast. I'm so happy you're joining me today, and it is a great pleasure and honor for me to bring you my guest today, Pamela Cohen. Pam Cohen holds a Master of Arts degree in clinical psychology from Loyola College. She has 42 years of lived experience with bipolar one disorder and recently published her book, Bipolar Depression and Me, from both sides of the couch. Pam has worked as a bereavement counselor, as director of education and socialization for people with severe mental illness for eight years. She currently works for the Plan Connections team as a certified mental health peer specialist. She enjoys her role as a peer specialist where she can share her lived experience as a consumer and a provider in the mental health field to help others who are struggling with severe and persistent mental illness. She has come full circle from her days filled with psychosis, depression, and anxiety to inspiring others toward empowerment and recovery. I am beyond thrilled to welcome you, Pam, and have our listeners hear about your incredible story and the work you're doing in the world of mental health. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. This is a great opportunity, and I really appreciate it. Yes. Well, it's it's near and dear to my heart. Um, I've worked with a lot of clients who have lived with bipolar disorder. Um, I've been an advocate for the peer recovery movement, and I really think that it doesn't get enough attention and awareness in our world, even among mental health professionals and therapists. So I'm super excited to have you here today. Thank you. I wish I had had a peer specialist when I got my illness. Well, 42 years ago, I think it's been. Wow. Yeah. They didn't know anything about recovery back then, did they? Not much. It was all a lot of new age kind of things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So I like to start by asking my guests about that notion of being heart-centered. And so I'm just curious for you, what does being like a heart-centered person mean to you? Because I think it's, it's, got to be part of how you work in the field currently. I agree with you. Um, I've had a lot of therapy. I think I've had about 41 years of therapy. I don't think I've missed a month of not having a therapist. So I, on the way, I learned a lot of different things from the good ones and the, well, I shouldn't say good ones, the helpful ones and the not so helpful ones. But I learned that it's really important to have self-compassion when you have an illness like what I have, because it's so difficult and it's so burdensome. And to be able to have your depression, but still be able to tell yourself it's an illness and I can keep moving forward with my life. And also I've learned mindfulness, self-compassion, non-judgmental, being non-judgmental with myself as well as others. 
and a balance between physical, emotional, and eating right and sleeping right and all those things that they always tell you about. But one thing that I found that was really important when I was younger, back when I got this, I was 19 years old, was the value of a good workout exercise really helped me because I got the endorphins. I, I didn't just take little walks. I would work out really hard. And mm -hmm. I think it got me through when there was no medicines that were working and um, all of that. So I don't know if I got off topic a little bit here, but. Um, yeah, no, this is great. This is great. I love that you could share some of those things through the years, the months, like you haven't missed a month of therapy. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> A little and, too much, probably. I'm probably a little bit over analytical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, I mean, and our listeners can just take that in. L look at that consistency. And that's that's part of this self-compassion, too, that maybe even though you didn't always want to go, you knew you needed to do it. And right. so this, this coming from the heart place for you envelops everything, the self-compassion, the non-judgment, the, you know, and then other things too, like taking care of your, your physical health and exercise. Mm. Um, so maybe starting at the beginning a little bit, um, you said you were 19, right? Like that's still young. Kid, very young, 19. Mm. And did you get the actual diagnosis of bipolar one or walk us through a little bit you know, of, of that experience. Sure. I was 19. And the year before that I had, I'm a, I was a tennis player and I had won the high school state championship at Deering high school in Portland, Maine. And yeah. then I went to college and I had won at the age of 18, the intercollegiate tennis championship of Maine. And then when I turned like 19, not quite 19, I started having anxiety, a lot of anxiety. And I didn't know where the anxiety was coming from. I now think I was, it was laying down the roots of my illness, but um, I felt a separation from people and this anxiety. So that was kind of my prodromal phase. Oh, yeah. And then one day I was waitressing and I was filling the ice bucket and all of a sudden this horrible, horrible pain came over me. And it was just the worst. And I knew my brain had broken. I knew this was a long journey. It was just this horrible feeling. And so I dumped the ice I had in my hands and I ran home two miles to my mother's house and she had a guest and I waited for the guest to leave. And I just said, mom, mom, something is terribly wrong with me. Oh and God. she didn't know what to do. So somehow we ended up at a therapist and a psychiatrist appointment. The therapist was because I was young and I had a boyfriend, she was focused on the fact that I was, she was worried that I might be pregnant. And it drove me crazy because I knew that wasn't the truth. And that's not what I was there for. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't seem to get her on firmer ground. But the good news was I was moving to Texas in a few weeks. I did see a psychiatrist and he didn't do much for me because he didn't know what was really wrong with me in just one visit. Um, because these illnesses present so similarly with psychosis being the major factor. And I wasn't quite psychotic then, but I became psychotic. Mm -hmm. And um, I like to explain psychosis like, and your therapists who are listening to this probably know this, I might be running down the wrong trail, but, um, no, no. And, and we don't assume that at all because to, to get this firsthand from somebody who has the lived experience is, is so 
helpful for us, for all therapists, right? Because often we don't, we don't hear it completely. Not everyone is as brave as you, Pam, to share what this was really like. So okay, it's well, really, really helpful for us. Okay, good. Well, I'll tell you a little bit about the clinical aspect and the personal aspect of psychosis. Mm-hmm. I define psychosis similar to fever. When you have a fever, you know, there's an infection in your body somewhere. Well, psychosis means there's something going haywire in the brain, whether it be schizoaffective, bipolar, schizophrenia, major depressive disorder. So these illnesses can look really similar. That's why we have so many times the diagnosis gets changed. For me, it was really bizarre. I started seeing colors and I was still playing tennis, believe it or not. And I would hit a serve and I would see like the tail end of the ball, colors coming from the end of the ball. And it was very bizarre. And then a real delusion happened when I thought I was the second coming of Jesus, Hmm. which is ironic because I'm Jewish and didn't believe in the first coming of Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) They come in in any kind of form, right? Yeah, there must be an area in the brain that has to do with religion because in my hospitalizations, I met many Jesuses. Mm. Um, It's kind of a common delusion. It was very scary. I did crazy things. I thought I had superpowers, so I would drive with my eyes closed. Luckily, I wasn't in Dallas. I was in Maine, where it was a small town at that time. So I didn't kill myself or somebody else. Right. Even even still, but all of these things are scary to just to be, you know, such an an avid and expert tennis player and and to have that weird color perception every time you serve must have started to really freak you out. The whole thing was extremely scary, but part of me was so ashamed. The depression made me ashamed really quickly. And I didn't know how to reach out at 19. Who knows how to reach out when things like this are happening? I didn't know I had a mental illness. I thought maybe I had a brain tumor or something. Mm. And you were experiencing that physical pain that something's wrong with me, mom. You were trying to. My brain really, I believe these are brain illnesses. I mean, it's kind of proven now, but um, I call them brain illnesses instead of just bipolar. In Mm -hmm. some ways, I think it shouldn't even be in the DSM-5 as a mental illness. I feel it almost should be a physical illness. Right, because it it affects the structures of the brain. Right, Mm -hmm. right. So then I also had this horrible desire or impulse to walk around in circles in the shower. I don't know what that was all about, but I would almost do it until I got nauseated. And I just felt like some force had overtaken me and the whole thing was just horrible. But I was horrible and scary. Very scary. Yeah. Yeah. So with the psychosis, I went to a therapist, a social worker, an LCSW. I was very psychologically minded, so I didn't even think to go to a psychiatrist. And the medical model really wasn't so much in my mind as a therapy kind of thing. At first, nobody sent me to a psychiatrist. They One time they sent me to a psychic and said I was having a chakra flooding and mm. that my chakras were flooding me and that I was having a spiritual awakening that was happening too fast. So it was really crazy making. Mm. But I was very lucky, Cindy, in the fact that I had a little bit of an observing ego that said, these people are not helping me. And I got myself to a psychologist mm-hmm. who basically told me I was psychotic 
and that the things I was believing felt real to me, but weren't real. Wow. And I was sort of pissed and happy at the same time. I kind of liked the specialty of being Jesus, like, wow, I'm important. Right. And on the other hand, it was a big relief because being Jesus is a huge job. So um, maybe you don't want that responsibility. No. <laughs> but so, the psychologist um, was finally able to give you that validation to say, yes, this, this is, this is your reality. And it's also an illness. Right. And it was, um, it was really helpful to hear that because I did, like I said, all that time, I had no idea what was wrong with me. And, um, so getting judged, but she, she diagnosed me with unipolar depression back in those days, which is now MDD. And of course you don't necessarily tell the doctor or the psychologist, the manic kind of things. It's one thing when you're in pain to go to a doctor because you want to be out of pain. It's different when you go spend $30,000 in Vegas and <laughs> come back happy. No, I didn't do that. But I mean, I, I know people who have. Right. And, exactly. Well, and that's why I, you know, I'm so grateful you're, you're sharing your experiences because like you said, a lot of times you don't even tell your own therapist what's, mm -hmm. what's happening. And so it's helpful for us to even hear like, oh, this is, this is part of that scary, horrible situation you experienced, right? Part right. of the, the prodrome and then leading into the actual psychosis, right? Right, right. Yeah. And it took me about a year. She never encouraged me to go get medicine, sadly. But at the time, I thought being psychologically minded, I thought her theories and her therapy would be enough to change my thinking, I guess. Mm -hmm. And it took me a whole year to get out of that psychosis. But with her having such good reality reality testing and teaching me that, I did get out of that. Without meds. Without meds. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's amazing, huh? Yeah. Talk um, about giving people hope, Pam. Uh-huh. That's amazing. And, and you also knew you needed to do things like the hard exercise that you incorporated to try to help right. yourself back then when you were young. And yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah. And I had a lot of suicidal ideation. But I was just determined I wasn't going to let this illness kill me. I just didn't want to die. So I was really willing to just keep fighting, even when I wanted to stay in bed. Um, but staying in bed always scared me more. I thought, if I stay in bed, this pain is just going to continue. And I'm just going to get worse and worse. So I would force myself. It was very difficult. But I would force myself to get out of that bed and do whatever I had to do, whether it was going to school or working or whatever. And I still had the brain pain, I call it. Um, yeah, this brain pain. And with that, you, as horrible as it was, you also didn't want to die, even though you had thoughts about suicide. Right, right. Yeah. And the brain pain is not like a headache. There's a specific kind of pain that I experience when I'm depressed that, um, well, should I read what I wrote? Oh, that would be wonderful. Yes. Because I was a little more... That would be amazing. And, you know, um, we are going to link to Pam's book. As you can tell, she's so compelling. And her book is Bipolar Depression and Me from Both Sides of the Couch. It's available on Amazon. And we'll also make sure to link to it. But yes, please, please share a little if you would. Okay. Um, I wrote this probably 15 years ago when I was having more symptoms. So it might be a little clearer about the depression. Today, 41 years later, I am still a person who suffers from bipolar disorder. My brain does not work properly, but it is all the more difficult as others cannot see it or gauge it like one would gauge a gaping wound or a fractured bone. One may see it manifested in my behavior in various ways, but for the most part, it is invisible to others like most mental illnesses are. 
One cannot see it on an x-ray or a PET scan or a blood test or an MRI. It can only be diagnosed through interaction with mental health experts, psychiatrists, and other people who are trained to deal with such acute illness. The pain is more intense and seething than one can imagine. That is why suicide attempts or suicide is sometimes its companion, seemingly the only way out of the terrible, unexplained agony. The pain is hard to describe or even decipher from the surface level. It is not like a headache, but it is a searing, unremitting, agonizing brain pain. It is like intense grief with a terrible self-loathing component to it. It influences my mood in an oppressive negative direction while it interferes with my sense of emotional balance. The pain is blinding in its own monstrous way. It is hard to understand its nuances unless one has had it and one would know if they had a major depressive episode at any time in his or her life. Depression is a liar, a thief in the night that steals one's true self. I am not the same when I am having one of those terrible bouts of depression. My thoughts turning in the deep recesses of my mind tell me I am fat, ugly, worthless, incapable, unlovable, insensitive, uncaring, and thoughtless. When I am in a depression, I am incapable of feeling other concern, others feeling either concern or love from anybody else in the world. For whatever, for whatever reason, this brain chemistry gone awry does not allow any room for connection with others, nor does it allow me to feel empathy or compassion from them. No external stimuli can help me during that terribly daunting phase. I am absolutely alone, like a secluded island. A beautiful day when the depression hits me makes me feel more intensely alone, and it is so contrary to how I feel. The pain is unrelenting, and all I can say is that this unrelenting pain of depression has been my constant companion and unwelcome guest in my head for long periods. I hate depression more than anything I know, except for anxiety, which is her best friend. Thank, thank you. Thank you. You're for welcome. Sure. Yeah. And, and putting that out there in the world. And, you know, it's, it's so graphic and concrete when, when you can share your experience and, and talk about what that brain pain is like. Somebody who hasn't experienced it has no idea. And somebody who's experienced it maybe in some way or another can relate right. and that, that connection, that relate relation and just how you describe the depression pam that's a thief and it steals it steals your yourself how did you mm. say that it was so beautiful steals um, your true self yeah it steals your true self yeah 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 and i did a little study with a very small sample size i asked people if they experience who i know who have bipolar and or have mdd and mm. i asked them if they had the brain pain because i had never tested this out i assumed everybody had it and some people said, no, they just had anhedonia yeah. and worthless thinking. They didn't have the brain pain. But I did find when I asked people who had bipolar disorder, they knew about the brain pain. Like I said, it's a very small sample size, so don't quote me, but that's what I came across. Right. Yeah. But I mean, I believe in in that 100%. You know, there's there's something there and um, there's, there's a, a textural difference too, right? Because with the bipolar, there can be that, that uncomfortable energization in a way that's, that is hard to describe. And then maybe that's part of the brain pain. Maybe that's part of the, the physiology of it. I mean, um, at any rate, you have lives with this and you said it took like 11 years to be correctly diagnosed 
Well, actually, it's a little different. I went to the capital of Austin to um, help advocate for people with mental illness. And the first thing I heard living in Texas, that we are number 51 in the nation, last in the nation for mental health, counting D.C. So if you add D.C., we're 51st, which is terrible. And they also told me or told us that it takes 11 years to be correctly diagnosed with a mental illness. And Kay Jameson Redmond Redfield, she says that her research shows that it takes eight years for bipolar disorder. Think mm-hmm. how many people die in that time. It's just outrageous. Yeah. And that's one reason I wrote the book. People have to know how bad this is and mm-hmm. start understanding it from a more physical point of view. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and you're writing the book from a period where you've been able to live with this, have a life, be successful, and continue to give back to others who have serious mental illness. Yeah, I don't know how I did it. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't do it again, I don't think. But um Mm -hmm. and I still live with pain of the illness. Every day I struggle a little bit somewhere here or there. Mm -hmm. I think it's because I went without medication, proper medication for so long. And I think my brain just succumbed a bit to the illness, kind of like neuroplasticity. My brain wants to go in that depressive area instead of making new pathways. Right. Yeah, exactly. What have you found? I mean, so medication helps you to be more stable now, but what else have you found to be really helpful? A team of people to support you, family, friends. Now they have mental health peer specialists. They have mental health clubhouses, which I'd like to talk about a little later if you'd ask me. Yes. Um, I belong to a really fabulous one that's made all the difference. I think it saved my life. Um, exercise, but not a, a little dilly-dally walk. You've got to get your heart rate up to get the endorphins. But starting with a little walk is good. So okay. that's not a bad thing. <laughs> Other people with mental illness that I could go to for support. Because bless my family's heart, they wanted to help so bad, but they don't know how much the pain is. And when I would say I'm in so much pain, they would say what I would say to anybody at that time, go for a walk. And then I'd be furious because you don't understand. I'm like going to die here and and I can't go for a walk if I wanted to. So it's that dynamic. Exactly. Or or they don't understand the the experience of anxiety or depression or psychosis. You know, it's it's confusing for them. Right. Yeah. And anxiety disorders, because I've had one, I came along with my bipolar. They don't feel like nervousness, fearfulness, like a regular person gets. It's a much more overwhelming feeling that for me, it made me feel like I couldn't cope. It was like, it was like, maybe that's when my illness broke out, but it was just overwhelming pain. And you could barely feel your heartbeat. It didn't feel like that same thing we get when you're nervous. Mm. I think that's important for people to know. That's great. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Did you know one in five people will experience a mental health issue this year? Mentalhealththreads.com is your online shop dedicated to promoting mental health awareness and breaking the stigma surrounding mental illness. You can find fun, creative, and inspiring products like t-shirts, hoodies, and more, all with positive messages that remind us to take care of our mental health. Favorites like Perfectly Imperfect, Your Anxiety is Telling You Lies, It's Okay to Not Do It All, and no risk, no magic. Plus, we have a special collection just for therapists, like our bestseller, I'm a mom and a therapist, nothing scares me. So come check it out at mentalhealththreads.com. Our mission is to start important conversations about mental health and to remind you 
that you are not alone. Check out mentalhealththreads.com today. And so there's this full body experience mm-hmm. for the range of symptoms that you get. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so Pam, this would be a great time to share a little about the, the work you do now, because so you got your master's degree in clinical psychology, and then um, currently you're working as a mental health peer specialist. And I think most people know about that, but we don't often talk to people who do that, who are, you know, truly working and serving other consumers in that way. And I'd love to hear what it's like for you. What do you like about it? And also share about the clubhouse model, because I guarantee I came up learning about rehab counseling and I know about the clubhouse model, but I bet a lot of people don't. Right. So twofold. Right. Two well, I'd love, I love to talk about both those things. So I'm excited. I'm a peer specialist. And what that means is I have lived experience. And I think, I don't know if peer specialists work with people other than people who have severe and persistent mental illness. When I went and took my course, everybody had severe and persistent mental illness. And what we do is we learn how to tell our stories to help other people when they're stuck in a similar spot that we've been in. And we take a course, it's a week-long 40-hour course, And we practice telling our story and we practice learning ways to help people. We come alongside the the peer, unlike a therapist, there's like, therapist has a little bit of a power differential because they're kind of trying to make the person change. We don't do that. We come alongside them. We kind of fill in the gap between the therapist and a friend. We're Mm -hmm. not really a friend, but we're not a therapist. And we try to go with what they want to do because so often people with SMI get told what they can't do. And so we're there to help them live their dreams. And even if they wanted to become a PhD, they might not be able to do that, but they might be able to take a class at a community college or something. So we try to work with that. Um, I find it very relaxing and wonderful that I could use all that crap I went through <laughs> to help somebody else. Like, oh, just, that's so great. Yeah. yeah. And, and you said, even with your book, and I quote, it's, it's her hope that people suffering with these illnesses and their family members use the book as a guide to enhance recovery. And right. then that's what you get to do in your work as a peer specialist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's amazing. And like I said, I wish I had had one. Um, a lot of people don't want to talk about their issues, though. So we find a little resistance sometimes. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, we for example, the clubhouse that I'm in now has been around for about five years, we had something else before that that transitioned into a clubhouse. But we used to have three to five suicides a year, roughly. We haven't had a suicide in the five years I've been at the clubhouse. Wow. It makes a difference. People have, I'll talk a little bit about the clubhouse now, I guess. Yeah, tell us about the clubhouse model. The clubhouse model is not like a place to go play billiards or cards or have fun in games. It's a work order day. We all come together. We make lunch together. Not everybody, some people who enjoy that. You don't have to do anything you don't want to do. So it's comfortable. You can feel like you can stop something if you start getting symptoms. And there are different units. Like there's one unit, like I said, for culinary, they make the food, they buy the food, they get the meals prepared beforehand. They know for the week what's going to, we're going to have and they clean up and, and they do all of that. And we get to have a wonderful lunch together. And there's right now, there's about 25 to 35 people a day who come to lunch at our clubhouse how many places go take 30 mentally ill patients on a cruise? 
30 of us went to Cozumel. That is amazing. Isn't that amazing? Great. So your clubhouse went on a, on a cruise. uh, Well, we can't say the clubhouse did it because that would be a liability, but 30 members of our clubhouse went on that cruise to Cozumel. We were on the beach in Cozumel. That's great. And it's the first time most people ever got a vacation in their life and a break from the everyday routine. And, and and so it goes back to not just that you're giving people a purpose and a function and meaning by having work or tasks or duties at the clubhouse, but also you're saying, look at what you can do. You can live a full life. You can do something fun with friends and go on a cruise instead of being told you're a person with severe mental illness and you cannot do X, Y, Z. Yeah. Go home and do what? Go right. home and isolate. Go home and isolate. Sit on your yeah. bed, smoke cigarettes, right? And I find it so much better. This is just my opinion. I find it so much more helpful than an IOP, outpatient, mm-hmm. after you've been in the hospital. Right. So people can come where everybody's really warm because they've been there before they know what the pain is like and they know what it feels like to be a new member and all of that. And we also, um, we do something called armchair traveler for one thing. Most of us can't travel much. So we take, we pick a city or a country and we learn all about it. Some people will learn about the history of it. Some people will paint the Eiffel Tower or something and we'll have statues there. We'll eat the food of that country. And we have a whole big evening of that. Like we've gone to France. It's amazing. So we do one. And we also are, we're open on the holiday. So people without family can have a place to go because we have a lot of people who don't have immediate family. Absolutely. So it really helps reduce the isolation and provide community and connection for folks that usually are, you know, kind of stranded and alone. Right. And I think for me, the most important thing was the structure. I have some place to go. Mm-hmm. It gets me out of laying around in the morning, feeling sorry for myself that, that I have pain and uh, gets me going. And um, it's really terrific. And I didn't mention about the peer specialist. We have four peer special. Well, I did talk about the peer specialist, but I want to go on about that a little more. We have four peer specialists. Um, we are free. A grant gives it to us for so we can provide for free. Mm-hmm. Um, we Since there are four of us, we can kind of match who would be good with who. At our clubhouse, we have mostly people who are struggling with schizophrenia, which is unusual. It's usually bipolar. But our club clubhouse, we have a lot of schizophrenia and schizoaffective people struggling. And I think you covered it all, Cindy, when you said about the community and the well, and and the difference too, as you mentioned, like for you, it was more helpful than going to an, an IOP because maybe I'm I'm just guessing, Pam, like you you have things to do and it feels more within the structure, there's function, there's meaning. It's not just like you're doing a group or learning a new skill. You're kind of engaging with people. You have, you have tasks and you have purpose versus people learn skills, learn skills and have relationships because we don't do anything alone. It's always side by side. Two people do something. Mm -hmm. You build friendships that way. Right. The friendship Um, and the socialization is so important. That's, that's huge. I, be, I believe the clubhouse model originally was like with the fountain house, maybe yeah. in New York. And they also provided like, um, like return to work and, and, you know, like career building types mm-hmm. of options. And I think part of the issue is that there are not enough clubhouses in all of the States. It's, it's, it's right. still a very underused 
resource. Right. And we have, uh, I think there's 330 something in the world. Mm. That's not very many when you consider the world's a big place. That's right. And um, it really, I think it saved my life after a hospitalization. I had tried to commit suicide and that was horrible. And I knew I had a place to go to and people who understood. And we have the greatest director. Her name is Ruth Josenhands. I have to give her a plug. She is just amazing. She's very much a visionary and we're always doing nice things. Like, for example, we have um, a coffee house jam where she found some musicians to come in and play for us. And we come in and sing with them and jam with them. And they're, they're terrific. They're like as good as any nightclub. Right. So it's amazing yeah. what so her vision really has made ours, I think, a little special. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shout out to Ruth. That's amazing. And and yeah. also she has people who members who want to be there, who are also giving back. And, you know, what a great kind of symbiotic relationship for recovery. It has right. to be that way. We can't yeah. do recovery in isolation. Right. And I like to talk a little bit about what recovery is, if you don't mind. Please. Um, a lot of people think recovery is not having any symptoms. They And people get caught in grief because of that. They just think they should have no symptoms. And recovery is living with your symptoms alongside them and trying to keep your life moving. So you don't have to just be stable. You can thrive. But it is difficult because the symptoms do come and you have to learn how to cope with them and how to bounce back. But like I said, I just want to clear up the notion that recovery doesn't mean no symptoms. And and I think that's huge, right? Um, Whether we're talking about bipolar disorder or any other mental illness or brain illness, right? Mm. That there the symptoms will be there mm-hmm. and, and it's learning how to deal with them. And, and the second part of your book, Pam, includes over 20 hard-earned suggestions toward wellness that you've shared tips for incurable but manageable mental illnesses like bipolar right. disorder. Because right. the tips are so necessary. The symptoms will come and go. And we need to have whatever is in our our plan or our toolbox um, to be able to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. Um, It is manageable. That's why I'm here. I was able to write a book and do some other things. And um, it's manageable, but it doesn't mean it's painless. And there's a lot of grief in that because I don't think practitioners always know that we're grieving oftentimes, like when a good thing happens to somebody else that you love and like they might've had a grandbaby or something and you couldn't do that because of your illness, mm-hmm. you get angry, part of grief. And you go through those stages of denial and anger and bargaining. And it happens often, not just when you're diagnosed. Right. So it's important to look for grief symptoms when people are talking to you, the why me's kind of thing. Why did this happen to me? There's usually a grief reaction behind that. Right. And and that's so important for my listeners who are therapists, right? To always look for this grief reaction because right. it may be that the person is doing great and they seem stable and you don't know why they have gotten into a place of being depressed again, but it could be based on a lack, like, an, and this loss, I wasn't able to do X because of my illness. And that's going to be an ongoing grief. And I'll get into denial. Sometimes I think I should be able to do things like everybody else, discounting the fact that I have a mental brain illness. And um, that's not fair to me to do that. So I have to snap myself out and say, well, Pam, this is your illness. You do have limitations and that's reality. Yeah. Somehow you've been able to embrace with the limitations come gifts and 
you know, the gift of, of being able to help other people and of writing. And, you know, you have, you have this joyful personality, Pam, and I know it's, it's not always like this. I'm uh-huh. sure but like it really does come through. Thank you. That's nice of you. I think I'm an optimist for a depressed person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that can be bad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you said you've always had this strong ego. You you didn't really want to die even when you were suicidal. You didn't want to let this illness get the best of you. It was worse staying in bed than, than not doing something else. Right. Mm-hmm. I also think it's important for people to know that when people do try to commit suicide, they're not thinking about their families. They're not thinking, oh, I want to leave my family. They're just in so much pain. They want the pain to end. It has nothing to do with they didn't love their families. So many times I hear, oh, how could they do that? Their family. They thought they were a burden to their family. Their thinking is very different. That's right. And, um, and, and, and that's so telling, especially coming from your lived experience, right? Like you mm -hmm. don't, you didn't want to hurt your family, but you had these thoughts, you had attempts. Right. It was to try to get rid of the pain. Right. And you feel bad. I felt badly. I, I left a note saying, you know, it's not your fault and I'll try to cover all of that, but luckily I made it. So that didn't have to happen. Yeah. Right. Thank God. You have, yeah. you have so much that, that you're share, still sharing with everyone. Um, yeah. What are, what are some things, so you mentioned about recovery, that it's important for, for individuals who are struggling with mental health to know that recovery is like a process where you're still going to have symptoms. What mm-hmm. else do you want individuals who have m- mental illness to know about recovery? Well, I think I call it perspective taking. I don't know if that's the best words to call it, but you have to take charge of your own illness. So I, I did this for many years. I sat on my behind and waited for the doctors to give me the magic pill or the therapist to say the magic words. And then maybe every once in a while you get this yeehaw moment where you learn something. But if you sit around and leave it all up to the doctors and the therapist, you're not going to get very far. So you have to kind of watch your own behavior and your own process. And for example, one day I got really sick in the afternoon. I got suicidal really badly. So I was did the right thing. I called my psychiatrist and I said, and I thought it might be from a pill I took. Luckily, I had that awareness. So I called him and he said, yes, I think it's from that pill. We're going to lower your dose and call me if you need me. Well, he lowered the dose and it was really helpful. Wow. But it could have been my life yeah. had I not had that insight. So you have to be really watchful of yourself. Um, I call it an observing ego. I don't know what we want to call it. Just self-attention, I guess. Observing ego, self-attention, having having that awareness and taking some responsibility. Mm-hmm. And learning areas where you have learned helplessness. We get We tend to get learned helplessness because we're in pain. So we don't want to try things a lot of times, but the not trying is the learned helplessness. And we have to find areas where we stop trying and try to overcome that. Mm-hmm. At least that's what helped me. Right. And, and that's super hard, right? To look at our oh. own areas where we've learned to avoid, right? Mm-hmm. It gets comfortable, very comfortable to isolate. And then it becomes a habit. And then you don't even realize you're isolating or that is a problem. And then you don't even think about moving forward. Mm So yeah, it's like overcome, learn helplessness is one of the hardest parts. Yeah, absolutely. Like I have one, I want to go swimming, but I just can't make myself do it. 
And um, I, I'm now that I've mentioned it out loud, I'm going to have to do it because my friends will get all over me. But um, Pam, some, are I, you reading my mind? I have the same one. I, ha I really? have the same one. And I, I and and sometimes it's just related to like a little anxiety. Oh, I don't want to like have to go to the pool and do all right. that. Or sometimes it's the avoidance of, oh, well, then I have to plan and pack my bag and, you know, everything. And um, it's too funny. Right. And, and yet we all have these avoidances or learned helplessnesses. And, you know, the more I put it off, the longer it's going to take. Right. Right. So it's hard. It is hard. And I will say, I also know that it's good for me, that it's a more meditative experience and that the water feels good. And I have not gone. <laughs> yeah, me either. Maybe when I'm in Maine, we can go. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I won't put that pressure on us. That's great. That's great. But it, yeah, I um, it does feel so good to swim and it would relax me, but I can't make myself get there mm -hmm. for similar reasons. Similar. And so this is just such a good example, though, of having that self-compassion and of, of also being able to say, okay, you know, rating it. How much do we really want to do this? How, you know, we know it's good for us. What would it take? How could you kind of get yourself out the door to do that? And you know what, if you don't, don't beat yourself up. Right. Because that's the part where, you know, most of our brains go, let's go into shame. Let's go into, oh, you're worthless. You're no good for doing this. And that doesn't serve us either. Well, then I think of the book, The Gifts of Imperfection. Have you read that by Brene Brown? Yeah, and getting rid of that shame. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why I've been able to write a book, not trying to promote myself, but I really worked hard on getting rid of the shame with this illness because there's so much stigma and self-stigma that is um, all the time. Absolutely. And, and we want you and others to promote yourselves because it's the only way we're going to start to combat this stigma and start to you know, level the playing field and 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 make it okay that people will have mental illnesses just like they have heart disease or diabetes or whatever right. else, right? And to have that awareness that there's also help, there's ways to live with it, there's ways to to live a a successful, fulfilled, and meaningful life. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And sometimes you have to look at that old Nike commercial. Just do it. The best. Yeah. Yep what's something you would want therapists and we've, we've given quite a few nuggets already. Um, what would you want therapists to know about working with clients with severe mental illness? Just realize that these people are in a lot of pain. It, it gets so easy when someone says, I don't feel good or I'm in pain to kind of think of your own experiences with pain. This is, I don't know how to describe it, but I have a therapist who's just this excellent listener. And she just keeps after me to tell her what, what that feels like. And she gets it. It's the first therapist I've ever had that. Well, she makes me come up with the content of the therapy. I've never had that before, where usually the therapist is in charge. But when I go in to her, she makes me start the conversation. Awesome. And um, that's really been helpful for me. Because mm -hmm. like I said, I was waiting for someone to give me a cure. Right. So that's have, helpful too. Yeah. When I have to come up with the structure of the conversation, that's a whole different ballgame. I have to think. And I also had a friend, her name is Tracy Schoenbacher. She said I could use her name. She's a clubhouse me member, but she writes down notes and goals and all this stuff before she heads into therapy. 
-hmm. So I learned from her, she really wants to get better and creates goals. And I thought, wow, that's a great thing. I'll stop sitting on my butt waiting to get healed. That's great. Thank you, Tracy, for that. That's a a wonderful suggestion. You know, and and it it goes against the learned helplessness, right? Because so often Mm -hmm. we just think, okay, well, I'll just go to this appointment and sit there. Mm-hmm. And that's the learned helplessness. So instead, you're being being encouraged to bring the content or Tracy comes with her goals and her thoughts and what happens during the week, you know, so that she's sure to be able to share that. That's beautiful. Yeah. And she went from living in a group home to an apartment to buying her own house in a different state by herself to help her mother with dementia. I mean, she's amazing. Wow. She has schizoaffective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gives me chills. It just shows the the level of of hope and what the human spirit can do, right? Mm-hmm. With support, with support and non judgment and just safe places to land, like Clubhouse mm-hmm. has been for you, right? Yeah, yeah, so powerful. Well, is, is there anything else as as we wind down here, Pam, that I didn't ask or that would be really important that you want to share with? our listeners? That's a good question. There's so much. There's so much. Um, We can keep talking. (laughs) Right. Um, The statistics are horrible. So I think it's one way reason I want people to buy my book without being self-promotive is that it takes, like I said, it takes 11 years to be diagnosed. Most people are getting diagnosed by their primary care physicians who really should be sending them to psychiatrists. And now I just lost my thought. The statistics are horrible. Um, There are 9 million people in this country with bipolar disorder. 25 to 50% try to commit suicide and 15% succeed. Mm. That's a ton of people. And that's people who are diagnosed. We don't even know about the people who aren't diagnosed. So I think it's important for family members to read the book so you get a feel of what this is like for people. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, right. We've, we've got to start changing those numbers, changing the statistics already. We know that so, so many individuals, and I can't even remember what the percentage is of just, you know, one in X that has uh, a mental health condition. I think it's one in four. Yeah. I think it's like one, or in, one in five, something mm-hmm. like that. Right. And, and so, and, and then when you look at the more serious mental illnesses, it just gets compounded in terms mm-hmm. of gravity and right. decrease quality of life or, or living. And right. that's not okay. I mean, you know, you, you mentioned Tracy, look at what she's doing. Like, that's, that's awesome. Right. But she's, she's still here and she's helping some here. Other people just as you are, Pam. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. She's caretaking for her mother with dementia. That's amazing. And she hasn't had any symptoms hardly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's really, she's, she's an inspiration to me. Yeah. So we really need to start changing the statistics by increasing education and awareness. That seems to be a big um, goal of yours in also writing the book and putting your story out there, which you've done so vulnerably and and articulately. And it's really, it's such a gift. Thank you. That's nice to hear. Yeah. And I, I just, one, one more question as we kind of close up, like, so you've done this immense self-disclosure Mm-hmm. in your book and then of course you also do it in your work as a peer specialist but even with your book like what's what is that like for you to know that you know your life is out there well it's been very easy it hasn't bothered me I think because like I said I did so much work on shame that I look at it as if I had a gallbladder problem or something or an appendix problem there's nothing to be ashamed of with those so why should there be anything ashamed with the fact with my brain isn't working right 
So I have very little shame or concern that people know my life. Um, although it's a little strange when people come to you and they say things and you're like, how'd you know that? <laughs> oh, I wrote it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's 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 fabulous. And and again, I think that's a tip, especially for therapists, right? To help your clients release the shame, make yeah. it be like a gallbladder, right? This mental illness that, you know, change, change up the comparisons and analogies and let's reduce the shame. Yeah, like I don't even people come up to me and tell me I had so much courage to write this book. And I don't know what they're talking about because I didn't feel like I was brave. I just thought it was a book. Mm-hmm. So it it had to come out. This was this was, you know, something that yeah. like they say people birth books. I think that's what uh, you do. <laughs> I think so. Thank you, Cindy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Pam, for being here and sharing so deeply and vulnerably about your your lived experience with bipolar disorder, with brain illness. So grateful. You're going to help so many people, both clients and therapists. Um, And everybody can get your book called Bipolar Depression and Me from Both Sides of the Couch. We'll link to it in the show notes. It's available wherever you get books like Amazon. And uh, yeah, so thank you again and continue to just inspire others around mental health awareness and recovery. Okay. Well, thank you very much for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, I invite you to subscribe and leave a rating or review. It really helps other people find this podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the links and resources mentioned. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.